from the fall of 1940 to the spring of 1941, a time known as the Blitz, was undoubtedly the most difficult time of the Second World War for the people of Great Britain. Uh, The reason for that is the uh, Germans, every single day for that about six-month span, bombed their capital city, London. Every single day, bombs are coming down. In the words of one writer, the rolling drone of sirens became a constant soundtrack. Imagine that, that kind of life, one where alerts, warnings, alarms are constantly, every day, interrupting your life, and they require you to drop whatever you're doing and go and find shelter, find some place to hide. Think about that life. From, from one perspective, those alarms, the sirens going off, could be viewed as a supreme inconvenience. A supreme inconvenience. Just this startling sound that interrupts your day. Maybe you're trying to read a book or take a nap and your whole life erupts into just chaos and madness because now you need to hunker down somewhere because the alarm went off. Not what you were planning for your Saturday. But from another perspective, there's real grace in that chaos. There's real grace in that chaos. If danger and destruction is imminent, the warning sirens are life-saving. To warn is to love. To warn is to love. As inconvenient and as disruptive as it might be, the, the reason the British government sounded the sirens was because they loved their people. and They wanted them to be safe. Imagine if, if the British government had said, let's, let's not sound the sirens today. Yeah, the bombs are coming, but let's let our people you know, keep calm and carry on. And we'll count the losses later. We would, we would call that criminal neglect. We would say that, that was wrong. That was evil that you did that. Silence, when danger approaches, is the unloving Choice. So as we come to our text this morning and we hear Jesus speak strong words of rebuke, strong words of warning, we must remember that the warning sirens from the mouth of Christ come from a heart of love. That's what we'll see in our text. Whatever the chaos and disruption it might create, it is for our good. Well, last Sunday was Easter, and today we're, we're back to our regular preaching diet here at the Parkway Church in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, if you're new, uh, maybe Easter was your first time, welcome. We're, we're glad to have you here at Parkway. We preach expositionally, which is a fancy word, which means we come to the next passage in the Bible uh, each Sunday and work our way through books of the Bible. Uh, another way to say it is no one comes or no one should come because they want to hear what I have to say. Uh, you should come because you want to hear from the Word of God. Uh, And so that's what we do here at the Parkway Church. We practice expositional preaching. And here, again, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, and today we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 11. 
So far throughout this chapter, Jesus has been dealing with a lot of false assumptions. He's been correcting false ideas out there about who he is and what he has come to do. So he's, he's shepherding the people away from the assumptions, the mistakes they're likely to make. Uh, and to do that, uh, to use an overly simplistic metaphor, he uses both a carrot and a stick. Uh, if you didn't live in the 1800s and drive a horse and buggy, so that Metaphor means nothing to you, a carrot, right? Uh, get something for the horse to go towards, something it wants, and a stick. Move, get, get it moving away from something painful. Well, uh, our passage this morning is pretty much all stick. So it might hurt. I'm sure it did for his original audience. He, he rebukes them over and over and over again, and we're going to study his rebuke of the generation he was preaching to in, in really two uh, points, which will form our outline this morning. First, he chastises them for being a childish generation, and then second, he calls them a spoiled generation, childish and spoiled. So let's, let's dive into that, that first point, verse 16. Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and he says, to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." Jesus is rebuking his audience here for being childish. He starts off with a question. He says, to what shall I compare this generation? To what shall I compare them? And his answer is that they're like children playing in the marketplace. So he's using a metaphor is, is what's going on here. Jesus, is, is, he loves doing this. Parables are all a kind of metaphor. And he's, he's using one here. He's comparing two things. The generation that he's preaching to, the generation who saw his miracles, and children who play in the marketplace. Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I, I do want to take a second and just think about how metaphors work. What is the point, the function of a metaphor? Uh, because usually Jesus uses children as a good thing. Like we're, we're familiar with these passages, right? Like, uh, let the little children come to me. Like that's a good thing. You want, to, you, want, you want to be like those children. Have faith like a child. That's clearly a good thing, but here... Uh, it is a negative comparison. It's the opposite. So we need to understand how his comparison works. Well, metaphors at the most basic second grade English class level, what they do is they take one familiar thing and they identify one part of it with an unfamiliar thing. So, for example, I could say, the home I grew up in was a zoo. And I'm comparing something you're familiar with, a zoo. You've, you've been to one something you're not familiar with, the home I grew up in, unless you're my mom, who's here, hi mom, uh, and uh, she knows probably what I mean by that illustration, but you don't, because uh, it, could be, it could mean a lot of things. What, what part of the, the zoo, the familiar thing, am I mapping on to the home I grew up in? It could be my house was a zoo because we had a lot of animals. That could be that could be a way that metaphor works, or it could be it was a zoo because it was loud and crazy. I'm one of three boys, my poor mother. Right? It's just, just a madhouse, like a zoo. It could be you were, uh, you know, there was 
overexpensive popcorn and you're prone to getting sunburn there. I don't know, like what, things that happen at a zoo, you need to figure out what about a zoo I'm saying maps on to the unfamiliar thing. In the same way, when Jesus uses a metaphor, we need to figure out what, what part of the familiar thing, children, childishness, is the mapping on to this unfamiliar thing, this generation. How does this work? In verses 16 and 17, he kind of, he explains this game that kids play in the marketplace. The market is, just think of it like the first century equivalent of the mall, right? There's shops, there's vendors everywhere, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of noise, and kids go there to play, to hang out with each other. It's, it's a mall, and they, here, they're playing this kind of, uh, this, this game of make-believe, and there, there's two parts to their, their make-believe game. First is, uh, you know, make-believe or imaginary wedding where you play a flute, you know, happy little jig, and everyone dances and you pretend like it's a wedding. Uh, and the second part of the game is uh, make-believe or imaginary funeral where you sing a dirge, uh, a lament song, and everyone puts on their sad faces and mourns. Thank goodness for video games. Like, we do not need kids playing imaginary funeral. What were they thinking? Uh, Fortnite is definitely better than that. Um, but in the example Jesus gives, uh, something we're probably familiar with, with a lot of the way kids do things, uh, he's saying some of the kids are being poor sports. They're not quite playing along. The, the audience of kids who's supposed to either dance or mourn, they're refusing to play the game. So uh, the leader plays the flute and they say, I don't want to be happy. Uh, and the leader you know, sings a dirge, a lament song, and they say, I don't want to be sad. They're just impossible to please. He's, he's illustrating here one of the more frustrating elements of childishness when a kid is impossible to satisfy because they make self-defeating, mutually exclusive demands. This is, what, this is what kids do. So my kids, this is, I was going to say weekly, almost daily occurrence. They will say, I'm still hungry. And the next thing they say is, I don't want food. These are mutually exclusive. I, I don't know what to do with, with that. That's, there's, there's no solution there. You're, you're canceling yourself out. Kids will be irrationally obstinate and refuse to be satisfied. I could give more examples, but the blood pressure of the parents in the room is already too high, so I'll hold off. It's, it's a frustrating experience. That's the familiar part of Jesus' metaphor, this, this obstinate irrational childishness. And Jesus maps that onto the unfamiliar part of the metaphor, the people. And so he's chastising them. He says, you know, that's, that's what you people who heard me preach and saw me work miracles are like. You are being irrational. You're being obstinate. You are refusing to be satisfied. This is what I'm dealing with. It's childishness. So he, he explains, he says, verses 18 and 19, John came and they're like, this guy doesn't eat or drink anything. He's definitely possessed, which is extreme. And then Jesus shows up and he happens to eat and drink and they're like, slow down, Jabba the Hutt. Like, what's wrong with you? You're eating like, he's a glutton and a drunkard. And it's, it's like, what am I supposed to do? Your excuses contradict each other. It's self-defeating. It's mutually exclusive. But that's what they're doing. They are childishly taking any excuse they can come up with to ignore the arrival of the kingdom of God. The point is not the, 
the reasonableness of their excuses. The point is that any excuse will do so long as they can continue to ignore Jesus and be comfortable living how they already were. In the words of one commentator, Leon Morris, they did not want to reckon with God's claim, so they manufactured reasons for passing it by. They wanted to treat the the warning bell Jesus is ringing like the tornado sirens on the first Saturday of the month at noon, right? They go off and you say, oh, it's, the, it's noon, first Saturday of the month. We can safely ignore. We can continue doing what we were doing. And that's not what they were. They were the air raid sirens saying bombs are coming in. Jesus makes the highest demands of your life. No one will ever make higher demands of you than Jesus. His kingdom is fundamentally disruptive to your life. It upends the status quo. It is inconvenient and uncomfortable at times. So, of course, people come up with excuses to disregard it. We like our comfort. Yes, I'd rather be reading a book or taking a nap when the warning siren goes off. I'd like to be the master of my own time. Thank you very much. But Jesus identifies a big, big problem with that at the end of verse 19. He says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, the wise path will be proven to be the wise path with time. Wisdom works, but foolishness doesn't. If you were a Brit in London during World War II and you ignored the sirens like an alarm clock, you just keep hitting snooze on with a different excuse every time, often contradicting each other, your foolishness would eventually become clear. It would not work out for you if you did not take cover. Childishness is foolishness. That's an element of, of childishness. It's, it's foolishness. I love my kids, but one of them tried to put hand soap on a toothbrush this week. And that same one got a shark tooth stuck up his nose yesterday. Like, childishness is foolishness. It was a fossilized shark tooth. I'll tell you about it later. It was, it was really bad. That's unwise. Childishness lacks wisdom. And in the same way, one day people will see that John and Jesus, though scorned and ignored during their ministry, were the wise ones all along. Eventually, it will come out clearly, that the truth will out, that they were right and the alarm bells they rang were real and those who ignored them were fools. It was true for that generation and it has been true for every generation since. The cultural narratives that every generation will spin as alternatives to Jesus are all inherently self-contradictory. They are all self-defeating. They are irrational, even childish. They might sound great. They might sound like they make a lot of sense. But you just push a little bit and they fall apart. If we start with the conclusion that we don't want Jesus to rule our lives, the reasons we give, the alternatives we choose, it doesn't matter if they actually make sense, as long as we can keep living how we want it to live. All the alternative worldviews of our culture 
inevitably collapse in on themselves. I was listening to a lecture this past week from Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City, or was a pastor, he's retired now. And he was addressing this, this common claim out there. Uh, in our, it's a cultural narrative today, even among Christians, that no one has the right to tell someone else how to live and what to believe. No one has that right. No one can say to someone else, you must, you, you can't, you must live this way, you must believe this thing. It's a foundational cultural narrative today. Well, what's wrong with that? It's self-contradictory. It's creating, like the children, mutually exclusive demands because they're saying no one should tell someone else how to think or live except for me right now telling you how to think and live. It's self-contradictory. Probably uh, the most obvious example today of a self-defeating cultural narrative that uh, is still very popular in our world today is the, the LGBTQ worldview. Because you just think for a few seconds and you realize that those letters, they can't go together. Right? The L, G, and B all assume the importance of biological differences between male and female. But as soon as you throw in the, the T and the Q, which claim that gender is a fluid reality, it's divorced from biological sex, the other letters become meaningless. As one... Uh, man who's, who's no friend of Christianity, but he, he wrote an article. He's a same-sex attracted man himself. And he makes this point. He, he says, it is not transphobic for a gay man not to be attracted to a trans man. It is close to definitional. It's close to definitional. That's true. The L, G, and B, all necessary, sorry, I'm alphabet soup today. They all necessarily assume that maleness and femaleness are a fixed binary reality. So putting LGBT, I'm falling over the place, LGBTQ plus together is inherently self-contradictory. It doesn't work. And yet it is presented as a package deal, an alternative cultural narrative in our world today. It's true of all the common excuses against Jesus' authority. And it's it's probably most common in our own, this is why I'm focusing here, it's most common in our own time in the area of love and relationships. I, I know many people who, this is their common story. Maybe it's your story. I mean, in high school, you, you didn't want Jesus because his standards were too strict. They were too high. And you really wanted to sleep with your girlfriend. His standards were too high. So I'm, I'm going to ignore him. And then later in life, you suffer because of unhealthy relationships. Because the relationships you're in actually introduce difficulty in your lives in really problematic ways. And you, then that becomes the new problem with Jesus. Like, why doesn't he care? Why isn't he with me? Why isn't he? I'm, I'm so mad at him now because of this suffering I'm experiencing in my relationships. That's self-contradictory. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, Jesus' standards are too high. I like my own better. And then say, I'm going to be mad at Jesus when my standards don't work out. You can't do that. And of course, he does care. He cares more than you ever imagined. And he's calling you to something 
something far, far better than the self-contradictory narratives of our world. Because living according to narratives like that will only lead to spiritual famine. You're starving yourself. All the kids in the marketplace can do. They're They're just sitting on the sidelines paralyzed by their own indecision. We don't want to play that game. We don't want to play that game. So what are they doing? They're just standing there doing nothing. They're missing out. I remember when I was a kid, uh, there was this restaurant we would go to occasionally called Choo Choo. It's a cute name. But this little train would come and, and bring you your food on a plate, right? So you wait for the little train to come by, you grab your plate, and that's your, that's your meal. But imagine a kid starving, hungry, and looking at everything going past on the plate saying, no, not that, no, not that, no, not that. They sure think they are living out their reality, their truth. They're living according to their own desires. And they're starving. It's a self-imposed paralysis where you feel like you're in charge, but you are really just a slave to your own desires. A self-imposed paralysis is deadly when the air raid sirens are ringing. It's starving yourself when there's a big meal right in front of you and Jesus comes and he's inviting you to take and eat. Grab a plate, get a real bite of him and find out if he really does satisfy. If his way really is wise. Because our own appetites, our own assumptions, like with children, our assumptions about what will solve our problems may be wrong. When my kids say, I'm hungry, but I don't want food, they're saying something else surely will solve this problem, and they're wrong. So don't be childish. Take and eat. But Jesus isn't done ringing the alarm bells. He actually is about to crank things up a notch. There is a judgment coming, and we must be Ready for it. That brings us to our next point. This is not only a childish generation, it's also a spoiled generation. Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades." For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So Jesus here kind of starts a new phase. He's done with his illustration, particularly of the childishness. And he starts retracing his steps, going back to the places where he's been already. And the first two places he goes are Chorazin and Bethsaida. Chorazin and Bethsaida. We know almost nothing about these two 
cities. Uh, Chorazin is only mentioned twice in the entire Bible. This is one of them. The other one is when Luke, in his gospel, is telling the story of the exact same event. So really just one. You know, we know not, this is all we know about Chorazin. Jesus did some miracles there. Bethsaida is also obscure. We know, we know a little more. It was located on the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus did a lot of ministry up in northern Israel. Three of his disciples were born there, Peter, Andrew, and Philip. Mark chapter 8 tells us he healed a blind man there. And Luke chapter 9 puts Bethsaida in the area where Jesus fed the 5,000. So we know a little bit about the, the miracles they, they saw there. We don't know much, though, uh, but what we certainly do know, verse 20, Jesus did mighty works there. They, they got to see miracles, and Jesus is going back, and he's rebuking them. He's retracing his steps, and he's rebuking them because nothing has changed. This is, this is really, really crucial to see. Look at verse 20. Jesus does not say, you know, I came through here, and you guys weren't properly amazed at my miracles, so I'm mad at you. He does not say, you know, the, the crowds here weren't big enough. Don't you know who I am? He says, I did miracles and you did not repent. You did not repent. The point of the miracles was never to astound and impress like Jesus is some cheap Instagram magician trying to get a bunch of followers. The, the, the miracles sent a message and the message was one word. Repent. Jesus is not interested, church, in making you impressed with him. He's not interested in mere amusement. He's not interested in you finding him interesting. A casual Christianity that is merely amused with Jesus, that finds him interesting, is no Christianity at all. He demands repentance a turn, a change. We'll talk more about what that means in a bit. First look at verse 21. He says specifically to these cities, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So Jesus is criticizing these two cities where he's done ministry and he's comparing them to two cities uh, and saying that you're worse than these two, Tyre and Sidon. Now those to us mean almost nothing unless you really, really know your Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, they were the two, two of the classic examples of Israel's mortal enemies. So it would be like today if I said, you know, the Nazis and Al-Qaeda. You know, those are the bad guys. We don't, we don't like them. We don't want to be like them. They're the bad guys. Uh, look, for example, at Ezekiel chapter 26. This is, uh, this is not Jesus. Uh, this is well, God, Trinity, anyway. Uh, this is God promising judgment against Tyre for their wicked ways. He says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre. I will bring up many nations against you. As the sea brings up its waves, they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets. Tyre was an island, and they're saying, you're going to be able to fish there. 
For I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know, I am the Lord. Pretty strong words. Pretty firm, clear judgment. And Jesus says to these cities that saw his miracles, that knew his name, that saw his face, if they had entire and Sidon what you have today, they would have repented. They would have put on sackcloth and ashes, which is a sign of grief, of mourning, specifically for sin. doesn't get much more humbling than that. If I were to say to you, church, if the Nazis listened to this sermon, they would have obeyed it, and you didn't. That's about as strong as I can get. That's a harsh rebuke. But Jesus actually isn't even done yet. He does go up one final level with Capernaum, verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Now, unlike the previous two cities, we do know quite a bit about Capernaum. It's regularly featured in the gospel accounts. Matthew has already told us that Jesus lived there. Matthew chapter 4. Verse 13 says, Jesus, leaving Nazareth, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. You know how uh, like everyone likes to claim a famous person who's from their town? You familiar with this phenomenon? So I lived in Lubbock for four years, West Texas, and they have streets named after Buddy Holly because he's probably the only famous person who even knows Lubbock exists. Uh, like, or I'm from Illinois, and every license plate in the state of Illinois says Land of Lincoln. Land of Lincoln. We can claim Abraham Lincoln. The fact that he was born in Kentucky, minor detail. We don't talk about that. But we can claim him, right? Because he, he started his political career in Illinois. We're the land of Lincoln. Capernaum could have put Jesus on their license plates. They had a claim on him. He was their hometown boy. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, but he started his ministry in Capernaum. That's some bragging rights. And Jesus, the hometown boy, comes back to Capernaum and he speaks some of the harshest words you will ever hear out of his mouth. Ever. Jesus hardly ever gets this intense. I can think of maybe one or two other times he is this this forceful in his rebuke. And he says, he says a, a little phrase that's kind of weird to us, but not to his audience. They would have known what this meant. He says, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. What Jesus is doing there is he is referencing, kind of loosely quoting Isaiah chapter 14. Look at this passage. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. You see that? I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. This is a passage commonly understood to refer to the fall of Satan. And Jesus is quoting it and saying, this is you, Capernaum. 
We're way past the Nazis. It, it does not get any worse. Jesus does, actually, though, he does say more. He keeps going. He says the people of Sodom would have repented if they had what the people of Capernaum had. I won't go into too much detail. Sodom from Genesis 19, though, is the original example of God's fiery, literally fiery wrath against sinful humanity. I won't go, again, into detail. It's the original sin city. Las Vegas plus Amsterdam plus San Francisco rolled into one times a thousand. That was Sodom. And God's response to Sodom was to rain down fire from heaven. And Jesus says, these cities can expect a more terrifying judgment. They can expect something worse. Look at verses 22 and 24. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Verse 24. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you, Capernaum. So Jesus here makes reference to the day of judgment. Probably should have a capital D, day of judgment. He's talking about a day the Jews were aware of, a day promised throughout the Old Testament that the Jews actually looked forward to because it is the day when the enemies of God finally get what they deserve. It is the day when they finally get the wrath that has been stored up for them throughout the generations. It is fine, like what Ezekiel 36 was talking about. It is when the bad guys get what's coming to them. Jesus says, watch out. You're going to get worse. You can expect a stricter judgment than them. It will be more bearable for your enemies than for you. Why? Because they were a spoiled generation. They were a spoiled generation. They had a privilege far greater than any of those cities. And they shrugged it off as a cheap magic act. Something they can shrug their shoulders, smile, and walk away, and nothing changes. Something worthy of their amusement, but not their devotion. Here's the principle, church. Here's the principle. There is a direct relationship between the revelation you receive and the strictness with which you will be judged. There is a direct relationship between the revelation you receive and the strictness with which you will be judged. I need to be clear about what, what I mean here. Basically, the principle is the brighter the light, the less excuse you have for blindness. Here's what I mean. We'll work our way from the bottom up. Every human being who has ever existed has had revelation from God, has had access to revelation. By revelation, I just mean God revealing something about who he is. No one's revelation is perfect. No one knows fully, completely, absolutely who God is, but we can know true things about God. We can't know him exhaustively, but we can know him truly. And everyone knows something about God. There are things that are universally revealed. We see this in Romans chapter 1. Paul writes, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He's talking about the pagan nations of the earth, not Israel, the pagans. It says, for his, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There are things about God that have been universally revealed because they are revealed in the universe. Makes sense. Pretty straightforward. You can look at the world God has made. You can see things like you can see that he exists. You can see that he's powerful. You can see that we must give an account to him. We owe him everything. Everyone is privileged with that knowledge. God does not have to give anyone revelation, but he gives everyone some. Everyone is privileged with that knowledge. All revelation is grace, and God gives some of it to everyone. But there are some to whom God gives more. More than what is generally available. So that was Israel in the Old Testament. Among the pagan nations of the earth, that was Israel. They had God speak to them. They had his word. They had his prophets. They had, if you will, a brighter light than the Egyptians. The Egyptians were worshiping all their pagan gods, and Israel knew who the true God was. And they knew things about his character, and they knew promises that he had made. They knew more about God. They had a higher, a stronger revelation. So God was always holding them to a higher standard. Spider-Man's uncle was right. With great power or knowledge about God comes great responsibility. This is why James says those who teach the word, what I'm doing right now, will be judged with greater strictness. Why? Because I get to spend my entire week diving into the wonders of God, studying his word, preparing to give it to you. So I will be judged with a greater strictness. It's an immense privilege, but it has immense responsibility. So when Jesus shows up and he walks among people, and the God who is revealed in the stars to all comes and puts on flesh and preaches and works miracles, there's an even higher standard. There's a greater Revelation. Capernaum wanted to boast, I expect, about their hometown boy, but they didn't realize that their privileged access would only serve to condemn them even further for their unrepentance because they were spoiled. They were spoiled. And like a spoiled child, they had no idea what they had and how bad things will be when their privilege is revoked. So it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom who had less revelation than for them on the day of judgment. The revelation you receive removes your excuses. And church, I cannot imagine anyone more privileged than us. I cannot imagine anyone in the world today or throughout history more privileged than we are. So this generation that Jesus is talking to got to see the lame walk and the blind see. But as we celebrated just last Sunday, we stand on this side of the resurrection of Christ. We stand on this side of the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Jesus himself, he told his disciples, it's better to have the Holy Spirit than to have me in the flesh. It's better. And we've got that. We have the universal availability of the scriptures in our own language. Do you know how many generations of Christians barely saw a Bible, much less read it on their own, in their own language? 
I have an entire shelf of Bibles in my house, probably 20 more than I need. In the West, in America, in Texas of all places, I mean, the privileges, they only get better. We complain and we talk about how bad things are going, but my goodness, we have no idea how privileged we are. We have no idea how privileged we are. There are Christians in Afghanistan who walk for hours in the middle of the night to a cave and gather around one Bible they all share together, and that's their church service. And here we are. We're free to gather. You've got 200 translations of the Bible on the phone in your pocket. And English, just to keep going, English is is far and away the language that the most and the best theological resources, Bible commentaries, you name it, the best ones and the most are all written in English. It's unbelievable. And then they're translated into Arabic or other places that that need resources. And we've just got, they're they're already in our mother tongue. I recently heard a, on a podcast of a man in Africa who wanted to download an ebook. Well, I, have, I got, have a hard copy on my shelf in my office. I think I got it for free. He wanted to download an ebook. And to do that, he had to spend a full day climbing a mountain so he could get enough cell signal to download it. I get annoyed if my phone doesn't work for five seconds. And he climbed a mountain to get a book that I had just have on my shelf. I may, I may, I'm not even sure if I've read it yet. We have an embarrassment of riches, church. And the problem is we far too often don't care. We don't care. We just want to come to church on Sunday, get maybe a little pick-me-up for the week, carry on with the comfortable lives we were planning on living anyway. When you don't know what it is like to live in the darkness, you will always take the sunlight for granted. And there's no doubt that is our situation. We take all these privileges for complete granted. We don't realize, more importantly, we don't realize that the blessings we have, this embarrassment of riches is the the siren sound that there are matters of eternal importance right in front of us and we cannot carry on living comfortable, easy, easy lives as if it's not that important after all. We have the words Jesus spoke to the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum and unimaginably more. We don't realize how privileged we are and we will be judged accordingly. So what should we do? I'll, I'll say it this way. Check your privilege. Check your privilege. I know that saying, particularly the word privilege today, is a bad word. Check your privilege usually means, you know, shut up or just renounce the advantages you have. Uh, I don't want you to go home and burn your Bibles. Don't do that. Here's what I mean by check your privilege. I mean actually listen to what the blessings are saying to you and repent. Repent. An awareness of the truth comes with demands from the truth. We cannot be content to be privileged and leave it at that. If I I win the lottery, I now will give an account for how well, how faithfully I steward that blessing. And it could make my dream a nightmare if I do it poorly. Repentance uh, does not mean shut up because you've got privilege. It means listen to what the privilege tells you 
which is to repent. And repentance means confessing your sins and turning to Christ. It's just a turning away from and a turning toward. The Bible gives us all kinds of helpful pictures of of what that looks like. So Isaiah chapter 6, which Jared talked about in tech this morning, uh, Isaiah gets this, this picture of God, just the hem of his garment, and he falls to the ground, and he has this, this unbelievable awareness of his sinfulness before this holy God. He says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. He, I, every, every little part of me, my lips are sinful, God. He has this fundamental, this overwhelming awareness of his un. Worthiness. That's, that's part of the first half of repentance. Another example of that is in the book of Jonah. So Jonah goes and he preaches the shortest sermon you could ever imagine to the Ninevites. He says like uh, three or maybe 40 days. I can't remember. It's one of those two. A couple days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. That's his sermon. And what do the people do? The king of Nineveh steps off his throne He takes off his royal robe. He puts on sackcloth and ashes and he mourns and he grieves for his sin. Repentance means seeing that before the God of the universe, we have nothing but sin. We must turn away from it. And instead, we must turn toward Jesus. We must turn toward the one who has no sin. We have the loudest alarm bells ringing because we are privileged beyond belief. And when you hear the alarm bells ringing, what do you do? You run for cover. And Jesus, the one who is speaking these words of firm warning, is the one saying, come to me, I have shelter. Come to me, I will protect you, I will hold you. See, there's usually one of two Jesuses in people's minds. There's, on the one hand, uh, you might think Jesus is all about and only about judgment. That he's, it's like he, uh, our, their favorite passage is in John 2, where Jesus flips the tables in the temple as if table flipping was a main part of his ministry. He's just this angry, you know, you guys are all wrong, messed up. He's only there to preach judgment. He does preach judgment. We've seen that. But that's an incomplete picture. The other Jesus people will often have in their minds is just the opposite. A Jesus who would never flip a table. Who would never preach words of warning. Who just pats you on the back and gives you a hug and a small word of encouragement. A life coach, if you will. That's also false. As I said at the beginning, Jesus uses both the carrot and the stick. And this passage is the stick, but let's just take a moment. Let's cheat and peer into next week's passage, just the first verse, verse 25 of Matthew chapter 11. Immediately after saying these words of judgment, he says, at that time, no break, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus rebukes his audience for being childish. And then he says, but here's the good news. It's children to whom God comes and calls to himself. It's children to whom this truth is revealed. And then, next week, we'll see, he will go on to preach some of the most tender 
the most welcoming, the most warm words he ever speaks. He says, come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He's showing you, I hope you see this, church, he's showing you in this passage, the, the burdens apart from him are heavy and you cannot bear them. But come to him. His burden is light and he will give you rest. The shelter is here. The alarms are sounding, but with him you're safe. He calls us to the foot of the cross where we can be clean and no, no more grief and no more wrath. He knows that better than any. As the hymn says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That's what he's saying. How is that possible? It's because Jesus gave up his privilege. He left the throne room of heaven, came down, took on flesh, and laid down his life so he could privilege you in ways beyond your imagination with the unfathomable gift of his grace. That's why he speaks these hard words. As Hosea says, he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Let's pray. Jesus, you are a faithful friend. Even words we don't like to hear are so abundantly full of grace. And Father, I pray we would know that now, we would see that, and we would heed the warning, God. Keep us from unrepentance. Keep us from having a, a small view of our sin. Keep us from viewing it as just some minor inconvenience, a rock in our shoe that just bothers us. Help us to see it as an offense against the holy God of the universe. And it must be dealt with. And help us to see that we can never deal with it ourselves, but only Christ can. And that in grace, he has. We pray these things in your name. Amen.